recap real quick. We're going on Faith, Love, and Mercy, Part 6. I don't know what the subtitle, subtitle is right now. Um, we'll see what happens. But basically, to recap, um, <clears throat> basically, uh, we've been learning a lot of stuff, okay? We talked about testing the Lord, um, which was probably one of, one of the biggest revelations of this series. Um, you know, and last time I said something along the lines of, um, whenever you, that testing the Lord is when you know God's in it, but you still question whether he's in it. For instance, um, you know, you know God's in it, but you question whether God is in it. And so, like, if God's telling you to do something, and then you're like, oh, I don't know, I don't know. And you're, you, God's commanding you to do something, he's maybe calling you to do something, and you're questioning, oh, I don't know, I don't know. Or you're being resistant. That's testing the Lord. And then also, we discovered last time that when you choose not to pray for somebody, even though you know it is God's will to heal, that's also testing the Lord. I don't know if you remember that or not. But I was listening to the whole teaching on the way up here. And uh, it was, that was one of the big things I got out of that. Um, when you know God's in it, but you question it. So doubt, to doubt God, that is to test the Lord. Okay, so what is doubt? It's fear. It's a question. It's to, is, did God really say? You know, that whole idea, right? So we notice, though, the, the scripture says perfect love drives out all fear and fear is the sister of doubt okay um when we don't when we don't believe when we're worried when we're full of anxiety fear okay so but perfect love casts out fear so when we know how much god loves us it casts out all of our fear make sense it casts out all of our doubt a lot of times people want to know well how do you get rid of doubt you you know the love of god you have to know the love of god perfect love drives out all fear so you must pursue um, an understanding of how much God truly loves you. Um, we also talked about how basically faith hinges on love. So you can't have love, you can't have faith if you don't understand the love of God. If you don't understand how much God's love of you, how are you going to believe in it? You know, so again, faith comes by hearing. Hearing what? Hearing the gospel, the good news. What is the good news? It's the love of God, you know? Faith hinges on love. Also, we know we, we learn that God's compassion God's compassion cannot be switched on and off. You know, so when we pray for someone and we say, "Well, I don't know if God's going to heal this person," we're questioning whether God has compassion right now. That compassion, God's compassion does not switch on and off. It is consistent. His steadfast love endures forever. The Scripture says, "His steadfast love endures forever." So when we question whether God will heal somebody, we are questioning whether or not he has compassion at this moment. Our faith is built on top of the love of God. So when we start questioning the love of God, that's when our faith is being hindered. Your very existence revolves entirely around demonstrating the love of God. So once we know the love of God, now we are compelled by love. The scripture says that um, the love of Christ compels us. And so then it pushes us, it motivates us, it moves us. That's what compassion is. It's when you're filled with love and you're moved. Compassion is love that can't sit still or remain silent. Compassion is love that has to take action. Compassion is basically when love gets convicted, fully persuaded, fully convinced. Your very existence revolves entirely around demonstrating the love of God. Whenever you are shown love, now you must show love. Okay, And so that's when we talked about last time about the spiritual giftings and how um, the... That's the whole point of the spiritual giftings. That the whole point of the spiritual gifts 
is to demonstrate the love of God. When we heal somebody, you know, that is demonstrating the love of God. When we help somebody, we are demonstrating the love of God. When we serve somebody, when we're hospitable, when we're teaching, when we're preaching, when we're sharing the gospel, when we get a word of knowledge, all of the spiritual gifts are designed to demonstrate the love of God. They're just, they're kind of like the love language of God. They're the heavenly love languages, you know? We've talked about that too, how we have our five love languages. And that if you're really going to love properly, you need to be able to do all of it. You need to be able to, to um, the five love languages we've talked about, sometimes we talk about those, you know, it's touch, time, gifts, words of affirmation, and what's the last one? Acts of service. <clears throat> so we have touch, time, gifts, words of knowledge, I mean, words of affirmation, and acts of service. So, now, and we talked about how nobody, if you do this for anyone, they're going to feel loved. Right? No, no matter which one you pick. If I come and I hug you, you're going to feel loved. If I come and give you a gift, you're going to feel loved. If I come and give you and affirm you with words of, of edification, you're going to feel loved. So, all five are demonstration of love, and all five are capable. We can do all five. You know what I mean? And sometimes people say, well, this is my love language. But just because you have a love language of, let's say, quality time, that doesn't mean you don't feel loved when you get these other things. You know what I mean? Just because that is your love language or your primary love language. And I believe that your love language is really just the one you feel more deprived in. You know, the, more, the, one that, the one that you're least secure about. That's actually kind of weird. And I've, I've found out, too, that love language is really the selfish language. Um, when, when God brought... <laughs> I believe that when God created Adam and Eve, He created Adam, right? He had communion with Adam. And He created, he created Adam so that he could love Adam. Not just so much so that he could receive love from Adam. God loved us, okay? So he created us so that he could have an object to love, okay? And not an object, like a thing. We're talking about a, a person, you know, obviously. He created a person, a living being to love, to show affection to, to take care of, to provide for, to teach, to cultivate. And then what do you say? It's not good for man to be alone. He wasn't alone, right? He had a God. But it wasn't good for a man to be alone because God was not cultivating a selfish person. He was trying to, was trying to cultivate someone that was like him. He was saying, I, I mean, he made man in his own image, right? But then there's another, another uh, chapter that will say, in man and woman, he created them in his own image. He created them. So in one part, it says he made man in his own image. And then in another part of the, of the scripture, it says he created them in his own image. So the marriage or the, the man and woman or the two people loving one another, that's actually the, 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 the reflection of God. The image of God isn't one person being by himself. It's not good for man to be alone. Why? So he could be selfish and get something from his wife? God didn't create Eve so that Adam could have something. So that Adam could get something. He created Eve so Adam could give something. I think we miss it sometimes. We think, oh well, God gave women to us so that they could serve us and we could be served. No, no, he gave women to you so you would have someone to serve. Because you can't truly be like God unless you are serving. You can't truly be like God unless you learn to lay down your life for another. God didn't create Eve for man to be selfish. God created Eve so man could learn to be selfless. Because if there was no other person, he'd be like a single child. You know? 
Have you ever looked at kids that were spoiled, that only there were just a, one, one child in a, in a home? I've noticed that about people who have got one kid. If it's a one kid, that one kid becomes very selfish. But when you have two kids, they have to learn how to share. They have to learn how to get along. They have to learn how to work together. You know? But to put a kid by himself, he just gets everything. He just receives, receives, receives. And he never learns how to give, give, give. I'm not saying that just because you have one kid that your kid's going to be completely selfish. I'm, what I'm saying is if you only have one kid, you're going to have to create a way so he can get along with others. You're going to have to put him with, a ki with other kids. You're going to have to teach him in a different way if you don't have more than one kid how he can get along with other people and how he can serve and give. But I'm just saying if you have two kids or more, there's more opportunity. <laughs> Constantly teaching my children how not to be selfish. You know? One of my favorite examples to use is whenever Elijah will come to me and say, Michaela interrupted me! And I'll go to Michaela and I'll say, I'll say, actually, I'll first tell Elijah, Elijah, you know, the Bible says that love does not insist on its own way. So, when someone interrupts you, it shouldn't bother you. Because if you love them, you know, it doesn't, it's not going to affect you. You know? And then I'll look at Michaela and say, the same passage says love is not rude. Quit interrupting your brother. <laughs> you know? So there's a point where in relationship we learn to love. In relationship we learn to love. I just watched this thing about this rabbi talked about how he says so much of what we, what we call love is called fish love. He says they'll, they'll take a fish. One guy walked up to another guy who was eating some fish and he says, man, I just love fish. He goes, no, you don't. You don't love fish. You love yourself. What do you mean? I love fish. He goes, no, if you love the fish, why did you take it out of the water and kill it and boil it and eat it? If you love the fish, what you really do is you love yourself. You're eating the fish because it serves you. And so a lot of times what we do is we treat our, even our relationships as fish love. We get, in, we get in a relationship with somebody for what they can give to us rather than what we can give to them. But true biblical love is not what you can get. It's what you can give. It's not self-seeking. That's, so that's why so many relationships fail in dating and marriage and things like that because we put on this great front because we don't want to lose somebody. In fact, most of the time our, our relationships not based on, on, on love. Our relationships are based on fear. Fear of losing. You know? So I'm going to do everything just right so I won't lose. So that they won't leave me. Why? Because I'm getting something from them. It's not about me giving something. It's not about me giving something to them. It's about them giving something to me. So I become a, a people pleaser. People pleasing is not love either. I'm not saying people pleasing. You tickle people's ears and you, and you, what do you call it? What does the Bible say? Flatter. It's not about flattery. It's not about telling somebody what they want to hear. No, that's, that's not love. Love is sacrificial. It gives, not expecting anything in return. So if I give and don't expect something in return, and then they do the same thing for me, then we have a very, very strong relationship. But love by itself doesn't need someone else to love you. If you're truly going to love somebody else, it doesn't require somebody else to love you. You can love without ever being loved back. Love stands alone. Now, our relationships don't last like that. If you're going to have a relationship, both people have to love the same way. Loving without expecting. See? So love, on its, love can stand alone. Let me say this again. Love can stand alone. Healthy relationships can't. Healthy relationships means two people to love one another the same, not expecting someone, something in return. But your relationship will not last unless both parties are like that. They'll be very insecure relationships. I was talking to somebody the other day. They were 
they were they're they're friends with such, with so with so and so and so and so is leaving, and so then it hurts them when they leave, and so <coughs> I have the benefit of knowing both of these individuals. So party A is leaving, and party B is hurting because party A is leaving. Well, after I talked to party A, he told me I don't think party B even loves me. I'm talking to party B, and party B is like, it just hurts me that he's leaving. I've had a lot of heartache. You know, I'm like, man, what's what's the matter? You know, I suddenly realized, I said, the final step of connection is vulnerability. That party A doesn't even know that party B loves them. The greatest tragedy would be if party A left not knowing how much party B valued that party A. Why? Because true connection, true meaningful connections mean that you take risk. It means that you lay it all on the line and you say, I really love you. And I really care about you. You know, and I'm going to miss you. And I wish you weren't leaving. You know? Well, that might hurt because they're still going to leave. Actually, what it does is it releases you of that hurt. Because now it's no longer a selfish relationship. You're actually laying it on the line for them to know. I really care about you. And then that person can do whatever they want with it. They can hurt you even more. Or they can be touched and say, wow, I'm really valued. And then the connection's even stronger. I've realized that every person I've ever, I've ever gone taken a risk for in my relationships, whether they stay or leave, my connection with them is stronger than ever. Oftentimes, too, when we're afraid of losing something, it affects us very severely. We... We start to almost sabotage other relationships, you know. And the reason why we start building up these walls is because we don't want to connect with people. God created us for connection, though. I was telling this guy, so connecting with this person or other people can be very painful. And I understand that if somebody leaves, that can be painful, right? Have you ever watched The Hobbit? You know, where the elf was like, why does it hurt so much? And then the other guy's like, because it, it, it was real, you know. And it's true. true. If you truly love someone and they backstab you or they leave you or they say something, it can really hurt. You know what I mean? But we're talking about real connection, really actually connecting with people. Um, it takes a huge risk when you really connect with people. If you don't connect with them and then they leave, it doesn't matter. Right? Or whatever. If they hurt you or whatever. So I told this guy, at this point, even though this person is leaving you, you need to push more into the relationship. The worst thing that could happen is if that if, if that person for any reason thought you were not connecting with with that person. I think you would put. Uh, I said I think you put this wall up even though you're truly connecting, and you don't want others to catch on. So if they leave or hurt you, then maybe it won't be so painful. I said this other guy, who's leaving, he needs to know how much you care for him and love him, and don't know, and, and I don't know if he realizes it. And I told him, I said, I think you, you do connect with people, but you intentionally leave space so that you can avoid the pain. In fact, I bet you easily connect with people in your heart, but they need to know. They, those people that you're connecting with need to know that you're connecting with them. If you don't lay it on a line, you're not going to have the final stage of connection, which is vulnerability. It's like the sweat. So anyway, I told him... Uh, of course, there's risk when you take, there's, there's a risk of pain, um, but it's better to love someone than to never love them at all. And part of loving them is going, in, going out online with them, right? Also, you want your relationship with this person to grow deeper, not die. The only hope for true meaningful connections is for others to be aware 
and make no mistake about how much you about how you feel and how much you value them and that's what God created us for was meaningful connections but when somebody does that and if you're not prepared if you don't realize that love's not about yourself then when that person leaves what you do is you start preparing yourself for the next failed relationship so you start trying to make yourself numb sometimes you do things with substances or whatever or sometimes you just you recluse maybe you won't talk so much maybe you you, you you dial it back you're not engaged whatever it is you do people do different things but then when we realize that uh, that love is not self-seeking so you know the real tragedy would be if that person doesn't know 100% how much you care about them uh, because love is all about giving to others not uh, and then he, but see, so people really need, it's, it's funny because people, haven't you ever heard somebody say, man, you're my best friend. Have you ever heard anyone say that to you? And what does that make you feel? Love. It makes you feel really loved. It's like, wow, I'm, I have a special place in that person's heart, you know? And so there's, there's a part of that when you're, people need to know you're special to me, you know? <laughs> they need to know that. I, if I, th this is why... Oftentimes, I'll sit here and I'll, I'll say to the whole group, you know, if there's only one guy here or two guys in here and you're the only person that this whole ministry is for, it'd be worth it. Because it is. To me, it's worth it. Every person, every single individual is important to me. It's not about having the masses. You know, I know we have a vision of 100 acres and 100 men, but it's not about numbers. It's about connection, connecting with each person. And I'm never going to be able to connect with 100 guys. At one time, I should say. I mean, I've connected with a ton of, a ton of people. I've connected with, with, with many, many people. But I'm talking about at one time. This is why what we do is we want to develop leaders. The develop leaders. Because I can only connect with about five to ten people at one time. And then those, that's why I spend more time with leadership. I mean, I'm not trying to be pick favors or nothing. What I'm trying to do is develop meaningful connections. Meaningful connections. And then those people also make meaningful connections. There's, there's people that have come to this program that I wasn't the reason why they, they were here. They were here because of the house leader, you know? And guess what? I never spent time with that other guy. I just spent time with the house leader. So I poured into the house leader, and the house leader laid his life down for the guy in the house. So the guy in the house is sticking around because of the house leader, not because of me. You see what I'm saying? There's not... Because it's not so much about the person that you're connecting with. It's about the fact that you are connecting with someone. And when that person shows you, I mean, I really value, I really care about you, it makes all the difference. And then if that house leader leaves, guess what? Everybody that connected with him leaves with him because he's, they're connected. You see what I'm saying? People are connected with certain individuals. And so that's why we always take a huge risk. We always take a huge risk in pouring into people, you know, really developing them, really, because they're going to get healthy, and then they're going to leave, right? But what we realize is not just about ourselves, it's about others. That's really the final stage of recovery. If you guys have listened to the, the four stages of recovery and discipleship, you know, it's plowing, planting, producing, and picking. You guys have I ever, ever explained that to y'all? 
All right, so we're gonna we're gonna I'm gonna expound on this. Okay, sound good? We have plow, plant, produce, and pick. The final stage of recovery. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna talk about this right here. What what we're gonna this is gonna probably be our I, I don't have a actual video recording of this, so this will be the video recording of this. Cool? Oh. <laughs> what? <laughs> Zach is freestyling and making it into our own current issues to help on his Oh, really? <laughs> it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Holy Spirit's a better teacher than me. <laughs> so what, what is This is so good. Think about it. Love that gives. What is plowing? <laughs> this is the breakdown. This is when you're breaking the ground. This is humility. This is the stage of humility. This is a stage of brokenness. Everybody. But Jesus says, I didn't come to heal the, for healthy people. I came for sick people. Right? So the physician doesn't come to healthy people. The physician comes to sick people. And the, the Pharisee said, are you saying that we're blind? He says, because you say that you can see, your blindness remains. Everyone is broken, but not everybody realizes that they're broken. Everybody is broken, but not everybody realizes they're broken. And if you don't realize you're broken, then you'll have... Rebellion in your heart towards change. You won't, and the part of the reason why you'll have rebellion in your heart towards change is you won't see the need for change. It's like if I come up to a person and give them chemotherapy pills and say, "Here, man, start taking these." I'm like, why do I need to take this? Is it make my hair fall out? But if I go to the doctor and I show them, "Hey, dude, you've got some cancer, and your only hope for survival is to take these chemotherapy pills." then they're going to be more willing to take those pills. And the reason why is because they have a revelation of the brokenness. They were already broken whether they realized it or not, you see. But it was their eyes being open to the fact, wow, I'm going to die. I need some help. Nobody submits to treatment without having... A, a revelation of their diagnosis. Nobody submits to treatment without having first a revelation of their diagnosis and of their brokenness. So there's this plowing. Now what happens in the plowing stage? So what happens in the plowing stage is a removal of the old. A dying process. Death. So what we do, what we do here is another another way of saying this is death, burial, resurrection, multiplication. The the these are talking. These are the stages of maturity. Stages of of. Recovery, stages of discipleship, stages of maturity, of growing. 
The first part, death. The first part, plowing. That's why the Bible says, he who seeks to lose his life will gain his life, but he seeks to gain his life will lose his life. Isn't that true? Either way, if you want to, if you lose your life, if you plow the field, you can gain life by replanting, you see? If you seek to gain life, you have to, you have to die first. It doesn't matter. That, that statement, he who seeks to lose his life will gain it. He who seeks to gain his life will lose it. No matter what, you got to go through the losing process. Now, sometimes people have to literally lose everything. Sometimes people's eyes open before that, before they've lost everything. And they realize their depravity. They realize, that's why the Bible says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And that's why the Bible says, Jesus says, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for the camel to enter the eye of a needle. So it, and then the disciples said, who can be saved? So, that, what's impossible for man is not possible for God. Poor in spirit. There has to be a point where you have a revelation of your poverty. A revelation of what you don't have. A revelation of how low you really are. And that sounds horrible. Nobody wants to talk about that. That's not good news. Yeah, but the good news is you're redeemed, right? So, you, good news is not good unless you know what the bad is. A lot of people say, well, what? A lot of people are like, <laughs> a lot of people are like, man, I don't like that hellfire and brimstone preaching. What are you, what are you getting saved from? <laughs> what, what are you getting saved from? What is the good news? If Jesus didn't save you from hell, what is the good news? If Jesus doesn't save you from your sin and your rebellion and your iniquity, your transgressions, what did he save you from? It's humility. Did you know you can't get grace without humility? If you don't know how messed up you are, you can't be saved. But a lot of people they don't want to they don't talk about that. I don't want to talk about hell, fire and brimstone preaching. Hey man, when you go preach the gospel, don't tell people about their sin. How are you going to get saved if you don't know about your sin? And there are people out there that don't know about their sin. A lot of people, they're out there living for the world, they're sinning, and they don't see anything wrong with it. That's the truth. People are like that. Now, a lot of people are not happy because they don't like the byproduct of what they're getting, but that doesn't mean they have a revelation of their sin. That just means that they have a revelation that their life isn't going anywhere. You see? So you have to show them why it's not going anywhere. Then you show them the solution. Do you have some? No. Death, that's part of it. You must have a removal of the old. Okay, so when we plow, we go through the field and we pull up all the weeds. We pull up all the old stuff. You're removing the things that were dead in your life. You're removing the things that only brought corruption in your life. That's the plowing process, okay? That's the renewal of the mind. You have to have this plowing process. Now, have you ever been on a field? Have you ever gone through a garden? I don't know. I grew up picking weeds when I was a kid. I hated it. I hated picking weeds. But I learned, I've learned a lot from picking weeds. After you pick the weeds, here's what's cool about picking the weeds. 
You pick all the weeds, you, you get rid of everything. If you go through and you, and you just plow the field, it looks pretty. It doesn't look nasty anymore. Have you ever looked at a freshly plowed field? There's something refreshing about it. Manure. Manure. <laughs> Something's refreshing about it. I don't know how to describe it. You look at a field that it's all been removed. It's been completely cleared out. It's like out there, even like after they dug up and they put that dirt across there like that. It kind of looked refreshing. It didn't look ugly anymore, right? It did not smell good. It did not smell good. <laughs> but when you, when you look at it, it's refreshing. It's like the land has rest. Make sense? You look at the land that you worked on, and it looks like it has rest. Make sense? And, and it does. But I don't know how to describe that, really. Every single time I've ever had to pull up weeds or plow up the ground or till up, till, that's another word, till up the soil. It's always been very refreshing. You feel accomplished. Oh, I got rid of all that junk, you know? But what happens if you just leave it like that? Weeds grow back. The weeds grow right back, right? The, the weeds grow back, and sometimes they grow back even worse because you don't have anything there replacing it, okay? The, the weeds grow back. So what you have to do is you have to plant. Now, even during this, there's a cultivation process in the planting, okay? In the planting, you'll have pruning. And I know that pruning is really when you, when you go to one branch and you start pruning off the things that are dead. But I think pruning, in this case, I'll say pruning as well. Pruning, pruning is right here. I'm using old peas. If you don't notice. Pruning. You prune while you're planting. You're also, the, the plowing process is continual. Okay? Or pluck. We should say plow and pluck. The plucking, you plow, which is the major demolition, right? But then you have plucking too, which is a constant removal. If you have a good garden, you're going to constantly be removing the weeds that pop back up. That's, that is the continual renewing of your mind. You constantly do this throughout your whole life. You're never going to get to a point where you're not plucking some weeds that are growing back. But, watch this. So there's this dying process, right? You got that? Then we get to the burial process. The plant. This is when you dig a hole, you put a seed in the ground, just like you're burying something. What's, what's very unique about this is... When you, when you plant, the burial process is a two-fold thing. First, you bury the old, saying you're never going to rise again. But then you also bury the truth in your heart. Make sense? It's two-fold. You bury the old, the old man dies and is buried, but then you also bury the new thing in your heart like a seed because it will be resurrected. Planting, very important part. This is when you start watering. This is the cultivation point. To be honest with you, the most difficult part is the plowing, but the most time consuming is the planting, the cultivating. And I, I really do be, believe that plucking is part of that. That's another reason why it's so time consuming. It's because you, you've, already, you've already plowed it, you're planting now, but you're also plucking. You're planting, cultivating, plucking. Why, why do we pluck? We're plucking because we're getting rid of compromise. Another word for negating compromise in our life. 
And you know what? There's some things that you didn't pluck at the very beginning. As you get to go and you start to cultivate that what you've been planting in your heart, you start realizing, whoa, that's, that's, there's another weed I need to get. I never saw that weed before. You start getting rid of those things. You know, and these are this as you get more intimate with God and you start walking with the Lord, you start realizing, man, there's more stuff in my life that I didn't realize I probably need to get rid of. You know, it's hindering the growth process. It's taking up the ground. It's sucking up the water that my good stuff should be getting. We're making room. When we pluck, we make room for more planting of good stuff. All right, so again, this is mind renewal. This is our discipleship. This is our training. This is when we're training, okay? This is when we're learning. And if you noticed, even in the burial, that's the humility, right? All right, now after you've planted, everybody got this down? We have produce or produce, production, and also resurrection. Okay, so you've, you've, you buried it, and now it comes back. It, or you buried the good stuff, you know, and then it's, now the good stuff is coming up. That's the resurrection. This is the process of our, of our, of our redemption in, in Christ, too. We die, we buried with Him in Christ, but we're resurrected. Everything in our life is like this. Death, burial, resurrection. We produce. This is when we start to create fruit in our life. Now, this fruit isn't necessarily um, offspring. We're not talking about offspring. We're talking about maturity. We're talking about signs of maturity. Signs of maturity. It's not maturity perfectly. It's not complete maturity. It's just a sign of maturity. Now, there's a lot of people that come to our program. They get to this point right here, but they don't get to the last part. A lot of people that leave the program early, a lot of people that um, even come up in discipleship, even in a church, get to this part right here. They have signs of maturity, but they'll bail on a church. A lot of times they'll bail on a church. They'll say, well, I'm just not getting what, I'm, what I need to get out of this church anymore. Not, I'm, not, I'm not learning anymore. Great. That means that you're a produce level. Now we've got to get to picking. And you haven't got to that yet, but when you uproot yourself and go somewhere else, guess what? Now you got to plow again, plant again, produce. And so a lot of times people will church hop because they stopped learning something. Well, I'm no longer getting fed here at the church. When you get to that point, that means that you're starting to produce fruit. And you may be missing something very important to your, the next phase of your growth. The next phase of your growth isn't to just learn. You know you learn 90% of what you teach. 90% of what you teach. When you have signs of maturity, you, a lot of times people will mistake in that as having arrived. Or they'll mistaken it as, oh, my teacher's not very good. No, 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 they got you to this point. That means they're good. Now you've got to figure out what your role is now. Because after you have signs of maturity, the next step is picking. I'm not trying to get into that yet. Signs of maturity. Let me put it this way. This is when you're operating in love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, gentleness self-control, right? Yep. All right. 
you have what we call the signs of maturity. These, the, when you see, when you look at a plant that's growing, first of all, it grows out of the ground and has one leaf on it. That's a sign of maturity. But is it mature? No, it's a sign of maturity. It's got a stem. It's got some stability. You see? It's got a root system is starting to grow. But is it mature yet? It's not mature. In fact, maturity, the sign of a true maturity is the fact that you continue to grow. If you ever stop growing, that means you're sick. I don't care how big the tree is. If it ever stops growing, that means it's become sick. There's only two options in a Christian life. Growth or sickness. If you ever stop growing, if you ever stop growing, that means you're sick. Something's not right. Something's been corrupted. And your, your signs of maturity will start to show. A limb will grow dead. We have a tree out here. We had to cut some limbs off of. It was growing. It was big. People might say, oh, it's mature. No, it's not mature. It's sick. Look at that big limb over there that's dead. It's not producing. So we cut that thing off. You see? There was corruption in that limb. So same thing in our lives. A lot of times we're going to get to the point where we might, something in our life's not producing like it should. Well, we might need to go ahead and cut that off. Or, you know. All right, check it out. So we have signs of maturity. So it starts to grow. The next thing you know, it starts to produce and starts to bloom. And it'll produce a fruit on it. All right? But at this point, it, it's not even ripe yet. The fruit's not ripe. It's just it's very green. Budding. Yeah, it's budding. Again, a lot of people will think this is... This is the end all we've got there, but we haven't got there. The tree is not mature yet. It's the tree is not mature until someone can actually pick that food off and eat it. Here's when you know a tree has really developed and really become mature, when others are benefiting from your life. So produce, this is what happens. We start now having even ripe fruit. This is still in the produce section when we're feeding people, okay? Other people can be fed from us. Other people are inspired by us. We'll start to influence. That is a sign of maturity, but it's still not the final stage of maturity. You could be a light to other people. You could be ministering to other people. You could be even helping other people. People could be gleaning off of your life. The final stage, though, is pick and reproduce. Well, actually, I'm sorry. I guess that's, that was it. That was... Picking. When people come up into you and pick your fruit off. That was it. I'm sorry. I screwed that up. <laughs> they come to you and pick off the fruit. That was the fourth stage. Okay? But even, even reproduce, though. Reproduce. This is whenever now, not only are people picking off fruit, but you save some and say, oh, you're not going to completely pick off of me. I'm going to plant you now. Oh, that's what it was. Or replant, whatever. Reproduce. The final stage here is not just picking, it's, it's to reproduce or to plant again. This is when the fruit falls off the tree, hits the ground, and starts to grow another tree. That's really the final stage, in my opinion, of your, of your, of your maturity. When you are literally now not only letting other people benefit from your life. So let's put it this way. 
A picking example would be if you started up a food kitchen and you were feeding people. You're, they're just consuming only. But the final stage of maturity is when you're raising up other people that can feed other people. If you have a, a if you're if you're only having other people consume from you, you've gotten very far in your maturity. But the final stage of maturity is when you're raising up other people that can give back. So now you're not doing it alone. Now you have a team. Now you're working together. Now it's not just about me serving other people. I don't have a Messiah complex where everybody has to come to me to get what they need. I'm raising up other people who people can go to them for what they need. You see? So those are your four or five stages of, of maturity, of growing. And that's what we are created for. God didn't create us just so that we could have a plowed up field. God didn't create us just so that we could be planted in the ground and stay there. God didn't just create us so that we could only produce some signs of maturity. God didn't create us just so that people can pick food off of us. He created us. The end goal, the actual commandment that He gave Adam and Eve was be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. Multiply, multiply. So if we really want to make the biggest impact in our life, if we really want to fulfill the calling that God has in our life, we must be fruitful and multiply. We become others-minded. It's no longer about us. Why are we doing what we do? We're doing it because we love people. And we want to see other people's lives change. Go over to Psalm 51. Verse 1 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. That's the, plant, that's the plowing. You see? When the old is being washed away. For I know my transgressions. I know them. I'm aware of them. My sin is ever before me. Again, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in the truth in the inward being. Look at that. Planting. Behold, you, this is so good, delight in the truth in the inward being. Okay, so he just wiped it all away. Now he's putting truth on the inward being, he's planting it. <laughs> and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones... There you go. Now we're getting down to producing. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. That's so cool. We're, we're seeing that, that purge part, you know, that the plucking is throughout. You see? The plucking is to the beginning, and every, every, every time he goes to a new level with God, you know, this is right here. Wash me, right? That's, that's, like, that's like plowing. You delight in the truth on the inward being. That's like planting, but it keeps on going back to purge me, right? That's the plucking. It's the plucking is throughout the whole thing. Let me hear joy and gladness. There's your produce. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
Again, this is what we're going to produce. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me, resurrection, the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Watch this. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. So not only was he uh, restored by God, now he's going to re help restore other people. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. There we go, again, more produce. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You, would not you will not be pleased with the burnt offering. Watch this. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good in Zion and in your good pleasure, and build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and the whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. It's tough, huh? We have to be broken. When we're broken, we allow God to plant His truth in our inward being. We can start producing, and people can start picking, and we can start re -producing. I never got through my notes, I don't think. Not once. God's good. Amen. Hey, thank you for watching and listening to this channel. Be sure to hit the like button and share it to your friends. And subscribe to our channel for more content every single week. And if you haven't yet, go visit our website at bombszs.com. We have a lot of content there and a lot of things wow. for you that are absolutely free. So be sure to utilize us as much as possible. We hope that you were blessed by this message. Till next time, have a blessed day.